Well, good morning. Turn to Isaiah chapters 41 and 42, which will be our passage for this morning. As we go through Isaiah, we're taking some sections uh, pretty slowly and then other kind of speeding up in others. And so, uh, Lord willing, uh, we're going to cover two chapters this morning. I succeeded in the first service despite not feeling well, so uh, we'll see how we do in this one. You know, it's kind of important for the preacher to cover the same material in both services because otherwise the next week it gets really interesting so we'll try to stay on pace I wanted to begin by taking you back to my childhood we lived in a mobile home park at the beginning and then we moved to some houses that were across this kind of little gully and a little river in between the mobile home park where we lived and then the house that we bought afterwards and as uh, you know, as kids are, that kind of little, I don't know, drainage ditch or whatever it was, was kind of our play place. We would go back there and we'd meet with the neighborhood kids from both sides of the little creek. And there was a big area, kind of a marshy area that had reeds in it, what we used to call cattails. And I don't know what they're supposed to be called, but you know, they're the ones that have tall reeds and it's like a hot dog on a stick. One summer, the neighborhood kids and my siblings made a clubhouse in the middle of that kind of marshy area. And the way we did it was we would break the reeds and then stomp them down into the mud until they had formed kind of a dry floor. And that's the way we were able to kind of create passageways deep into this kind of marshy, you know, you know, marshy area filled with reeds. And then we hollowed out just a labyrinth in there of rooms. And we had this kind of secret clubhouse going on in there. It was a lot of fun. Sometimes, you know, there'd be some kid who was near to the club and he'd start bending down reeds he wasn't supposed to. Like, no, those are the walls of the castle, you know. But if a kid had bent over a reed and it was one that we were trying to keep because they were the walls of the castle or the doorway or something we would try to repair the damage and we quickly discovered that it's very difficult to get a damaged reed to stand back up straight in fact the only real way to do it was either to stand there and hold it or to intertwine it with healthy reeds Today's text, the Lord is going to tell us that he is compassionate and tender towards bruised reeds, that he holds them up in his righteous right hand, and that he intertwines them with the stronger reeds so that they can stand. We're going to spend most of our time in chapters 41 and 42 studying three comforting passages within these two chapters but before we do that I want to kind of give you just a general overview of these two chapters so that you can kind of know some of the content that we're not going to be able to spend much time on this morning. So the main thing I want you to know kind of from a broad overview standpoint is that in chapters 41 and 42 we see two key people and then two key themes. So starting with the two key people we see the liberator which we're going to find out in chapter 45 is Cyrus. So we see the liberator in chapter 41 and then the redeemer 
in chapter 42. So roughly speaking, chapter 41 focuses on the liberator and chapter 42 on the redeemer. The prophecy of a coming liberator who will release the people from Babylonian captivity. That's kind of a near-term prophecy. And then the longer-term prophecy in chapter 42 of the coming redeemer. So in chapter 41, verses one through four, we see the first of what will be several prophecies about the rise of King Cyrus, who 150 years after this is written, will issue a decree which enables the Jews to be released from their Babylonian captivity and to return to the Holy Land. This is a prophecy, actually a series of prophecies given well over a century before the events occur. And we're gonna talk more about Cyrus when we look at chapter 45, which names him by name long before he was even born. But the main thing I want you to note is simply that it is truly amazing that the book of Isaiah prophesies the rise of Cyrus not only before he was born, but before anyone could even imagine that the Medo-Persian Empire would overthrow the Babylonian Empire and that the Jews would be enabled to return to the Holy Land. But in chapter 41, verse four, God says, who has performed and accomplished it? Calling forth the generations from the beginning. I, the Lord, am the first and with the last, I am he. In chapter 42, God is going to give a challenge to the false gods, the idols of the nations, and says, if you're truly gods, then predict the future. Reveal the end from the beginning if you are truly God, because God is eternal. And he's going to say in chapter 42, actually, the idols of the nations not only can't predict the future, they can't do anything. In fact, they need someone to use a good sturdy nail to nail them to the floor so that they don't fall over. They're just inanimate objects. So it is amazing that we see this prophecy of Cyrus beginning in chapter 41 and going on until he's actually named by name in chapter 45. But after prophesying that a liberator would come in the near future to end the Babylonian captivity, Isaiah then turns his attention to the distant future when the Redeemer will come to save his people from their sins. So in chapter 41, we see a near-term prophecy regarding Cyrus, the liberator, and in chapter 42, we see a longer-term prophecy of Jesus, the Redeemer, the servant of Yahweh. The Messiah, the servant of Yahweh, is introduced in chapter 42, verses one through four. And then if you look at chapter 42, verse nine, it says that new things are gonna be proclaimed before they even spring forth. And so this is looking forward to the messianic hope, the new things which will spring forth. And when Isaiah uses that term spring forth in chapter 42, verse nine, he uses the Hebrew term tzamach, which sounds very similar to the word tzemech, which he used back in chapter four, verse two, when he described Messiah as a branch which would spring forth from the root of Yahweh. 
And so chapter 42 is purposefully drawing the reader's mind back to the messianic prophecies given earlier in the book that the root of Yahweh, the root of David would spring forth and that he would rule the nations, that a son would be given to us and that would be a divine son who is mighty God and is the prince of peace. Isaiah is helping us connect the dots between the messianic prophecies early in the book and the coming servant of Yahweh who will redeem his people and save them from their sins. Chapter 42 contains a song of praise which is one of four what we call servant songs in the book of Isaiah. These are messianic prophecies in poetic form. And so chapter 41 talks about the near term, the liberator who's coming, that's King Cyrus. And then chapter 42 the more distant future, the coming of Messiah, the Redeemer. So chapters 41 and 42 discuss two key people, but they also focus on two key themes. And those themes are the foolishness of idolatry and the reliability of God. Throughout chapters 41 and 42, two themes alternate back and forth. They are interwoven, just one and then the other, and then one and then the other. So for example, we see the foolishness of idolatry in chapter 41, verses five through seven, contrasted with the reliability of God in verses eight through 20. Then again, we see the foolishness of idolatry in chapter 41, verses 21 through 29, and then contrasted with the reliability of God in chapter 42, verses one through seven. Again, the foolishness of idolatry in chapter 42, verses eight and nine, contrasted with the reliability of God in chapter 42, verses 10 through 13. And then this section ends in chapter 42, verse 14, through the end of the chapter, with a lengthy exhortation to reject idolatry and to trust in God. So again, the dual themes of rejecting idolatry and trusting in God are interwoven throughout these chapters. So two key people and two key themes. Well, that's kind of the broad overview of chapters 41 and 42. So kind of keeping those in mind, let's now move to a more detailed study of three comforting passages in this marvelous section of scripture. And the first is in chapter 41, verses eight through 10. Read along with me as we read these incredibly comforting words. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its remotest parts and said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not rejected you. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. What marvelous words. The question is, though, do they apply to us at all? Clearly, they are addressed to Israel. They're addressed to the sons of Jacob. It even says to the descendants of Abraham. If you know your Old Testament history, you know back in Genesis chapter 12 that God made a covenant with Abraham and then reiterated that covenant with Isaac and Jacob 
and that covenant extends to all of their descendants. It's an unconditional covenant, an eternal covenant that God has, is, and will keep, and he will keep those promises literally. And one of those promises given to them is that God will bless those who bless Israel and will curse those who curse Israel. That's stated very clearly in Genesis chapter 12. And we see that played out not only throughout all of the Bible from beginning to end, but throughout the rest of human history as well, even in our own day. God blesses those who bless Israel and curses those who curse them. We see that idea here in chapter 41, right after he tells them not to fear because he's with them, that he'll uphold them. In verse 11 it says, Behold, all those who are angered at you will be shamed and dishonored. Those who contend with you will be as nothing and will perish. You will seek those who quarrel with you but will not find them. Those who war with you will be as nothing and non-existent. For I am the Lord your God who upholds your right hand, who says to you, do not fear, I will help you. Do not fear, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you, declares the Lord. And your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I have made you a new sharp threshing sledge with double edges, and you will thresh the mountains and pulverize them, and will make the hills like chaff. You will winnow them, and the wind will carry them away, and the storm will scatter them. But you will rejoice in the Lord. You will glory in the Holy One of Israel. Those who bless Israel will be blessed. Those who curse Israel will be cursed. Now, a Christian worldview does not require agreeing with everything that Israel does, but it does require blessing them and not cursing them. A Christian worldview requires us to be a friend of Israel for a very simple reason God is their friend. We must be friends of Israel for God is a friend of Israel. Look back again at chapter 41, verse eight. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend. You do not want to be an enemy of God's friend. Lest you experience the cursing which comes upon those who curse God's friend Israel. So this passage is clearly, unmistakably written and addressed to Israel. Israel, Jacob, the descendants of Abraham. So if that's the case, why did I say that this is a comforting passage for us? Why not just kind of read this with interest of what it says about Israel and then go on our way? Well, I believe that this passage and what is said here applies to us also and I want to explain why that is the case now some people would say that these promises apply to us because God has rejected Israel and replaced Israel with the church and therefore he took the promises given to Israel or at least the good ones and gave them to the church that is not the case 
These promises apply to us, but when we ask the question why they apply to us, the answer is not because God has rejected Israel and replaced her with the church. The answer is not that God has taken these promises away from them in order to give them to us. That is not the case. Romans eleven twenty nine 29 says, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. He does not give a promise and then retract it. He doesn't give a promise to one group of people then take it away from them to give it to another group of people. Can you imagine, like at Christmas time, you, know, you give a, a present to one of your kids and then the kid is disobedient, so you take the, his present away from him and give it to another kid? God doesn't do that. And yet, this passage does apply to us. Why? Well, the reason this passage is comforting not only to the physical descendants of Abraham, but to those who are of like faith as Abraham is because we have been grafted in to the messianic hope. Not because it was taken from them and given to us, but because we were grafted in to their promises and to the faith of Abraham. This is explained very clearly in Romans chapter 11, verses 17 through 29, which begins by talking about how the Gentiles have been grafted into the messianic hope and ends in verse 29 with a promise that God hasn't forsaken Israel, he has a plan for them, and it says because the calling and the gifts of God are not revocable. He keeps his promises. And this is a great comfort to us because we see the rebellion and disobedience of Israel that's described in great detail throughout the book of Isaiah. And yet God says, I promised and I will keep my promise. If God keeps his promise to them despite their disobedience, he will keep his promise to us despite what? Our disobedience. So I want to read this passage again, applying it now to ourselves, but doing so with the humility and gratitude of those who, by grace, through faith, have been grafted in to the root, to the root, the root of David, the branch of Yahweh, the divine vine, Jesus the Messiah. Remember, Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. Let's read this again, applying it now to ourselves. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its remotest parts and said to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not rejected you. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God, I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Because I have been grafted into the messianic hope, I am. Verse 8 says that I am God's servant. To be a royal servant was an incredible honor in the ancient world. It was an incredibly important position. 
And it had a very significant purpose because when the servant acted, he acted on behalf of the king. So we have a significant purpose and an important position. And verse 9 explains how we attain to such an important position and such an important purpose. Verse 9 at the beginning says, I was taken from the ends of the earth. (coughs) That God gathered in his servants from the ends of the earth. And applying this ourselves, the ingathering of the Gentiles into Messiah's church foreshadows the regathering of Israel in the great Jewish revival of the end times. Going on in verse 9, it says, I was called from the earth's remotest parts. Called from the earth's remotest parts. If that sounds like Acts chapter 1 verse 8, it's because Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is referencing this verse. And Acts chapter 1 verse 8 describes the witnesses of Jesus the Messiah going out to the remotest part of the earth to share the good news of what Messiah has done. The gospel call has gone out to literally the remotest part of the earth. And if you think about the remotest part of the earth, not from an American-centric viewpoint, but from the viewpoint of Isaiah writing in the Holy Land 700 years before Christ, the remotest part of the earth would be someplace like where my ancestors are from, that far northwestern remote island that we call Scotland even to the pagan tribes of Scotland, this call will go forth. Called from their remotest parts. Then verse nine goes on to show that God declares us to be his servants. I was declared by God to be his servant. The end of verse nine says, I have said to you, you are my servant. This is a declaration by God of who I am and what my identity is. I am God's servant. I was taken from the ends of the earth. I was called from the earth's remotest parts and I was declared by God to be his servant. Well, not only my God's servant, but verse eight says I am God's elect. And that means that my position in the royal household is secure and my salvation is forever fixed in the eternal decrees of God. In fact, the last phrase of verse nine reminds me that God's elect are absolutely and eternally secure in Christ. It says, I have chosen you and not rejected you. Whoever is chosen is not rejected. I am chosen by God. Just as Israel is God's elect nation, I am part of the elect chosen in him before the foundation of the world Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 I am chosen by God and therefore I will never be rejected by God just as the gifts and calling of God to Israel are irrevocable Romans eleven twenty nine. so also his gifts and calling of me are irrevocable Romans chapter 8 no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus Nothing can separate us from the love of God. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. I am God's elect. I am 
chosen and I will not be rejected. Then verse eight says that not only am I God's servant, not only, only am I God's elect, but it says I am God's friend. I am God's friend. And that means God is with me, that he will help me. And verse 10 explains the incredible comfort that comes from knowing that God is your friend. In verse 10, I learned that I shouldn't fear because God is with me. I learned I shouldn't worry because God will help me. And I learned I shouldn't, uh, that I will not fall because God will sustain me. Verse 10, do not fear, for I am with you. Don't anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Then we're gonna get to chapter 42, and we're gonna learn that he doesn't break the bruised reeds. He holds us by the hand. I will not fear, for God is with me. I will not worry, for God will help me. I will not fall, for God will sustain me. He will uphold me. This is the perseverance of the saints. How marvelous it is to know that I am God's servant, that I am God's elect, and that I am God's friend. God is a good friend. What I'm less confident about is how good of a friend I am to God. The second comforting passage is chapter 41, verses 17 through 20. Look at verse 17. The afflicted and needy are seeking water, but there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst. I, the Lord, will answer them myself. As the God of Israel, I will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and springs in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land fountains of water. I will put the cedar in the wilderness, the acacia and the myrtle and the olive tree. I will place the juniper in the desert together with the box tree and the cypress that they may see and recognize and consider and gain insight as well that the hand of the Lord has done this and the Holy One of Israel has created it. People who are afflicted and needy in a parched land with no water and God says, I will cause the desert itself to burst into fountains of water. I will cause the cascading rivers to come down from the mountains and this wilderness will sprout and bloom. It will even have cypress trees. Think of the redwoods in California and you're getting close. God keeps his promises. This passage reminds me that God will answer my prayers. He says, I, the Lord, will answer them myself. By the way, why don't I pray through someone to God? Why do I pray directly to God? Because of passages like this. I, the Lord, will answer them myself. I have a direct friendship with the Lord. And he will answer my prayers. I also learned from this passage that God will not forsake me. Verse 17 says, as the God of Israel, I will not forsake them. By the way, if you believe that God has forsaken Israel, explain to me how you interpret this verse. He says, as the God of Israel, I will not forsake them. And yes, this is a precious promise for us too because we've been grafted in. 
But what comfort would it be if he said, I won't forsake them, then did forsake them, and then gave us the promise? How certain would a promise like that be? If you believe that God took the gift from one kid and gave it to you, what makes you think he won't take it from you and give it to another? God will not forsake me, just as he has not forsaken his chosen people, Israel. This passage also reminds me that God will create a way when there is no human way. At the end of verse 20, it says that God does these marvelous answers to prayer and he says the hand of the Lord has done this and the Holy One of Israel has created it and it says in verse 20 that God wants us to see and recognize that fact that there are things only he can do. You may be in a situation in which there is no human answer. So what do you do? Pray. Pray. Well, the third and final comforting passage I want to look at is in chapter 42. And I... He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. The verse, this passage begins by saying that the Redeemer is upheld by the Father and clothed in the power of the Holy Spirit. And because Christ was upheld by the Father and clothed in the power of the Spirit, faithful justice verse 1 says he will bring forth justice to the nations verse 3 he will faithfully bring forth justice he won't be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice on the earth and then verse 3 such a marvelous verse he'll bring gentle compassion to the broken a bruised reed he will not break a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish and then the passage goes on to say that he holds you by the hand and watches over you. 
Jesus will bring God's perfect law to the earth. Verse four says, the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law and he will save sinners from all nations. Verses five through seven says that the light will go to the nations. Prisoners will be released. Blind eyes will be opened. He will save sinners from their sin. These are marvelous promises. Because I've been grafted into the message, In a few minutes, we're going to partake of the Lord's table together. And as we prepare our hearts to do that, I want you to meditate on the marvelous statement there in chapter 42, verse three. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. In his famous book called The Bruised Reed, the Puritan writer Richard Sibbs explains why God allows us to be bruised. And he says that there's a reason why God allows us to be bruised before conversion and a reason why he allows us to be bruised after conversion. Quote, this bruising is required before conversion so that the spirit may make a way for himself into the heart by leveling all proud and high thoughts and that we may understand ourselves to be what indeed we are by nature, sinners in need of a savior. After conversion, we need bruising so that reeds may know themselves to be reeds and not oaks. Even reeds need bruising by reason of the remainder of pride in our nature and to let us see that we live by mercy. Such bruising may help weaker Christians not to be too much discouraged when they see stronger ones also shaken and bruised. So bruising is necessary before conversion so that an unbeliever will realize their need for Christ and it is needed after conversion so that a believer won't grow proud and will realize they are still dependent on the mercy of God. But then after explaining why bruising is necessary, Sibs describes the tender mercies of God. Listen to this quote. As a mother is tenderest to the most diseased and weakest child, so does Christ most mercifully incline to the weakest. Likewise, he puts an instinct into the weakest things to rely upon something stronger than themselves for support. The vine stays itself upon the elm, and the weakest creatures often have the strongest shelters. The consciousness of the church's weakness makes her willing to lean on her beloved and to hide herself under his wing. Wonderful quote by Richard Sibbs. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. I want to ask you, my friends, 
Are you a bruised reed? Have you been bent and broken by trials and suffering? So my prayer is that you will find comfort in the marvelous truth that Christ doesn't break the bruised reeds. In fact, he strengthens it, stands it up, upholds it with his righteous right hand, intertwines it with other reeds until it is healed. So if you are bruised and broken, entrust yourself to the mighty hand of God and he will uphold you. And then get deeply involved in the life of other believers. Interweave your life with theirs so that their strength can uphold you when you are weak and your strength can uphold them when they are weak. That is the solution for the bruised reed. Maybe you're not a bruised reed. Maybe you're a dimly burning wick. Other translations translate this as a smoldering wick. The ancient oil lamps, if it was producing instead of light and heat, if it was producing a smoldering smoke, something was terribly wrong with the lamp and the owner of the lamp would have to take and trim the wick. He would have to cut the wick and trim it and then replenish its oil so that it could produce light. I think this is referring to those whose light has grown dim because they've fallen into sin. Instead of light, they're just producing, they're just filling the house with smoke. If that's you, find comfort in the marvelous truth that Christ doesn't extinguish the smoldering flame. Instead, he trims the wick. When he trims the wick, it cuts and it hurts but he's doing that so that you can burn brightly once again. If you're producing more smoke than light, I want to encourage you to submit yourself to the restorative discipline of the Lord. He comes with tender kindness. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he won't extinguish. Lord, as we come to your table, we give you praise for you are compassionate and merciful. Lord, what a friend we have in Jesus. We give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name, amen. As the men come and serve us the bread, I wanna encourage you to examine yourself. What are the bruises? Take them to the Lord for healing. In what ways does your wick need trimmed? Allow the Lord to cut so that you can burn brightly once again. So let's spend some time in reflection, men.